Yeah. Um, because I think part of being real leaders or true leaders is 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 willing to say everything we think we know, right? What we thought we knew. Let's just pause it for a second and put it on the side, right? Mm. How can we do this totally differently? And that's the world of the unknown. And it's a lot harder going off the beaten track into this new unknown world and try to figure out what the question is, let alone the before you can even begin to get the answer, you know? And and, and to me, they are some of the biggest, you know, most powerful leaders are the ones who've demonstrated that. Buckle up for this hour, 30-minute episode of The Real Leaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders, harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and its profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message was provided to you by Omar Sheikh, the co-founder and managing director of Global Ethical Finance Initiative, who I was introduced to over the phone, and after a few minutes of speaking with him, felt this was someone I needed to have come on the show due to his breadth of knowledge and his perspective of capitalism. So on today's episode, Omar and I break down Milton Friedman's essay on the social responsibility of business, explore Adam Smith's wealth of nations and how it applies to unchecked capitalism, and ultimately discuss the humbleness and bravery needed to rethink today's GDP construct and enter into the world of the unknown. So let's get to it, good people, and jump into this episode with the real Omar Sheikh. Enjoy. Let's do it. Here we go in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Releaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Omar Sheikh the co-founder and managing director of the Global Ethical Finance Initiative. Omar, thanks for being with us today. Pleasure, Kevin. So, Omar, we had a a nice conversation beforehand, went over your life, your career, and how you've kind of ended up where you are today. It's fascinating to me. So, before we dive into uh, all the concepts, all of the philosophies on business today, uh, would you mind unpacking your journey to where you are right now and how it shaped your view of money and meaning? Sure. Um, very simply, Kevin, I'm, I'm just a fairly average chap, just uh, was brought up in a way um, from, from, I guess, my parents to, to look for purpose uh, and not to chase money, but to chase excellence. Uh, and in a very kind of um, inquisitive environment as well. So during the early days of my career um, in the late 90s, uh, I, I saw a few things which really hit me, which I couldn't reconcile. One was as a junior auditor uh, living in the world, we saw Enron Parmalat collapse. Um, and then as, as a manager, we, you know, I saw Arthur Anderson collapse as well which really made me question my own profession. You know, what are we doing as, as auditors? We're meant to be one of the, the you know, key pillars of confidence and trust uh, and authenticity into the financial system. So that was one thing that hit me fairly early on. The other one was the, the dot-com and dot-bomb world, you know, of valuations and speaking to a senior asset manager and a friend of mine from, from London who went over to the Valley um, you know, we were talking and he said it's, it's fear and greed that drives markets, you know, uh, not these fundamentals that, that we, we were so often talked about in our technical 
we, we were taught in our technical training and so on. So th there was that, and then um, I, I think that they were they were some of the things that really shaped my thinking early on uh, in my career. So I started asking a lot of questions, uh, and around 2004, I stumbled into ethical finance through a faith-based form of finance, which which gave an alternative perspective, um, which which was again you know fascinating to add to that kind of melting pot that was going on up there in the head um lubricated by the london tube where you'd have time to sit and read a book you know uh and i was asking a lot of questions probably too many questions uh before the financial crisis um raising a lot of concerns and then lo and behold the global financial crisis of 2008-9 occurs and and then the story goes on from there i think that's what's really triggered my personal journey into trying to understand the broader economic system, um, how it all links together, right down from the fundamentals of a company um, and, and the financial statements that we that, that, that they are presenting, uh, but really how the whole thing comes together. Uh, and I still don't know it. I, uh, frankly, I still think it's, it's quite, uh, quite, quite weird at times, you know, how, 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 so, how the whole system engages. But when you, you know, break it down to its nuts and bolts, you realize um, sometimes we've strayed so far from its core purpose, you know, um, of financial intermedi intermediation, of prudence, uh, of you know, systemic stability, of facilitating, you know, po positive, you know, uh, progress and, and 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 positivity in societies to you know financially engineered wizards who are doing all sorts, you know. So that that was really my my entry point into this whole thing. So Omar, what, what was the void you were trying to fill? What type of questions were you asking to understand? So if you look at valuations, for example, um, in, in businesses, you know, one day there's a dot-com boom, there's a hype, there's a market sentiment, and literally the next day that's wiped out, right? And you just think, well, hold on a minute, where's the fundamentals here? I remember auditing this company there. It was a hearing aid company, manufacturer, um, a small, medium-sized business, uh, operating for around 20 years, family-owned, decided to make one of the models. They had several models of hearing aid, one of hearing aids. One of them, they, they decided to add the word .com to the end of it, you know, model X, Y, Z, whatever, .com and put it into a separate company and, and create a valuation which was several times greater than the existing business that they had run for, for, for 20 years. So there, there was questions like that, which I, I, I couldn't fully understand that surely this can't be right. You know, I understand the logic, I understand the process, but is there not a risk here? You know, is, is this right? Is this fair? You know, um, where do we create our, our, our compass to measure what's fair? You know? Where's the social benefit for this? What's going to happen to the investors who come in on this, put their pension money in, and then all of a sudden the market bombs and they've lost X amount of valuation. So it, it was it was things like that which which really made me, um, you know, kind of think what, what what's going on here. And I, I remember I asked a, at, at a conference I asked this professor from a leading business school in in the UK about you know. Um, fractional reserve banking, about narrow banking specifically, a concept put forward by the Chicago academics. Uh, and this was pre the subprime crisis. And I remember saying to him, I said, 
you know, when we put our money in our bank accounts, do we have a, any say as to whether it's lent out? And do we have any influence as to where we want that money to be lent out? Now you have it. Can we as depositors, you and me, we've all got money in our bank accounts, we are in deposit accounts or current accounts. Can we actually say, you know, can you support local businesses and the same risk profile? You know, then as you would in, in, in any normal in, 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 in the rest of your portfolio. And I remember I was mocked at this conference. You know, the, the guys are what planning are you on? We've moved way beyond that, you know. Um, you know, the narrow banking concept is gone, dead and buried. And lo and behold, 12 months later or soon after, we have the global financial crisis and we realize our UK retail banks were engaging in subprime mortgages in the, in the US and in, in other parts of the world without any say. And the UK government post-banking crisis, Vickers report comes out with this uh, analysis about having safe haven banks, you know. Um, and then it all starts to begin to chime with historical you know, references um, by some of the founding fathers in, in the US. I think it was Abraham Lincoln or, or one of them who mentioned that bankers are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies, right? And, and you begin to, to see this picture emerging of repeated errors, you know? Um, and I remember studying the Glass-Steagall Act, you know, where they separated retail and investment banking previously um, because of the, you know, banking, banking issues, banking crises, historical ones. And now they, they had repealed the act, of, you know, these banks all began to merge again together, the retail arms and the more riskier investment banking arms. And then surprise, surprise, again, we have another crisis, you know, surprise, this the subprime global financial crisis. And then what do we do? Say, oh, we need to separate out retail and investment banking again, you know, the regulators. So are we just going around in circles? Are we chasing our tails? Um, you know, where's the actual social good and, and, and purpose in this? Are we engineering systemic risk here? You know, where's the link between the financial services economy and the real economy? Um, and how is money actually created and injected into our system? And is that a democratic and fair process? You know, um, these were some of the real big challenging questions that I arrived at by doing the hard graft on the small detail at a company level or at a multinational company level through the audits, through the, the work we were doing in the private equity team and so on and so forth. Um, that's, that's really the, 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 the journey, I would say. Uh, it, it's just so interesting to me. And I think it's interesting to a lot of people listening to this. Now, you know, how do we get to a point where we're so far away from a true north? And true north to me means, you know, you, you can, I think the analogy that was given to me was if you are a hitchhiker and you're walking north and you go up to, you know, let's say we're, we're starting in Michigan or in Maine and you, you enter into Canada and he says, well, which way is the North Pole? And he said, oh, it's this way. You keep going, you get up to Nova Scotia, and you keep going. And like, hey, where's the North Pole? Can you point me in the right direction? Yeah, it's over here. And you keep going, then you get to the North Pole, and then you ask, where's, where's North? How do you get here? And, and the true North, what is it? And I guess the, the analogy I'm trying to make here is, is we seem to not know where true north is. It seems to be made up. And if we veer off in our own way, we'll, we'll go in a, in a different route of north and we'll never get there. So you've mentioned the, the market corrections. Market corrections tend to happen um, and they're 
some, you know, they're bad for the economy, but they're also healthy for the economy as well. What do you see right now with COVID-19 happening? What do you see right now with the market corrections that are incurring? And, and how do we get back to building back better, to rebuilding a capitalistic society um, that can go in the right direction of a true north? Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that all comes down to this full shade. I think COVID, a lot of us in the kind of ESG, responsible finance, green space, are, are actually nearly hijacking the COVID situation by saying build back better, the, the hashtag you, you'll see in the, in the phrase. Um, the recovery has to be a green recovery. Um, I think we need to address that regardless, regardless of COVID. Or, or, or otherwise, I think the fear was climate had got to a top two global agenda point with Larry Fink, with Mark Carney, with TCFD, et cetera, over the last decade. It moved slowly further and further up the, the priority ladder, and there was a risk that COVID would completely derail that. So it's kind of tagging along with it, if you know what I mean, uh, to ensure that that as a, as a core agenda doesn't disappear. But the fundamentals still remain the same. And those questions need to be addressed before COVID and after, you know, disease, you know, BC and AD, as as the analogy has been given. Um, And I think, you know, I I genuinely think, Kevin, I like the way you framed it there as, you know, kind of finding that north uh, and then continually that moving. And I think that's just society. There seems to be this oscillation over decades or if it takes centuries, you know, and, and, and I think we had moved towards a world of unchecked capitalism, towards the world of the pursuit of profits at all costs, uh, of a narrow definition of um, uh, shareholder profit maximization and shareholder primacy as opposed to stakeholder primacy. Uh, and, and that's always been there. I, I don't think it's anything new. I just think we create new terminologies to address these. So for your Milton Friedman's back in the day, you know, of the 70s saying, the, 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 you know, the social purpose is to create profits to others, you know, such as, um, you know, such as Jack Welsh, who, who called that one of the dumbest ideas in the world, you know, um, in, in, in his, in his uh, interview with the FT. So it's, it, it's this, it's this real, I think we have to realize this, this kind of oscillation. And if you take a period post the Great Depression, you're coming out of a, you know, World War II. In, in, in the UK, we're moving from, from kind of the 50s to the late 70s. Now you've got Reagan, you've got Thatcher in Britain, you know, late 70s saying, you know, it's all about free markets, you know, return government to a small, small kind of a small G, small, leave, leave the free markets. And that's when they're left and that's what they're going to pursue. You know what I mean? It's just going to be complete um, uh, uh, focus on, on profits, on, on things that are measured, and that's financial statements, up, which, which are measured, which are numbers. Um, and now people have kind of oscillated back and said, you know, oh, no, what about, you know, and it was always there. It's not that it wasn't there. It's just the, the, the I think the voice was louder on the other end. You know, we had Gordon Gecko breed is good, right? You know, we we, we had a, a huge increase in in corporate executive pay relative to shareholder, you know, return on on, on shareholder capital. Um, you had all, all of these things moving. I remember John Kay joined us in Edinburgh last year and gave a fantastic 
presentation on, on the mission statement of company, um, how they evolved over the last 10 or 50 years. But now you're beginning to see, again, the return of this purpose. Companies need to have purpose, and it has to be beyond profit. Profit with purpose, profit through purpose, profit and purpose. You know, it's not sufficient just to have that pure, you know, narrow focus um, on, on um, shareholder maximization. And that's now an interesting world. So how do we now in contemporary language design and uh, define purpose? You know, your B Corp, your blueprint for a better business, uh, meeting the SDGs, you know, sustainable development goals. Is, is, uh, I don't think people ever ask the question, how did we get in this mess in the first place that we needed the sustainable development goals, the 17 goals and the 100 and so targets that underpin them and, and, and so on. Uh, and, uh, and measures, um, it, are they a byproduct of our form of capitalism? Um, and or where's the world of governance and, and, and uh, corruption, if I can put that in another word, so justice, you know, where, where is that and where is that uh, lending itself and uh, contributing to these issues for which we're trying to create these, you know, the, the sustainable development goals to make the better world, you know. So I, I think we really need a bit more of a holistic thinking towards this, but it's very encouraging. I'm very happy to see in the last 15 years that I've actively tracked the what I call ethical market, which is there's a whole another issue, the tax, taxonomy challenges in the industry, you know, there's such a uh, alphabet spaghetti there. I'm very encouraged, uh, Kevin, in the last 15 years that we, we're beginning to see the tide has risen. No longer can big corporates get away with doing nothing or be seen to be doing nothing um, in this space. So net-net, it's, it's positive um, movement and direction. And it seems to me an oscillation of humanity. Trickle-down economics has failed, right? Hasn't worked. Now we're going back, you know, from, well, just a few elite who are benefiting to a kind of broader no we've got to have purpose and you've got to be accountable for that purpose and, and corporate needs to think about its employees and so on and so forth you know absolutely and i think it is a byproduct and i also think it's just also a reflection of society businesses have just gotten so big uh we tend to forget about the external costs that we are having on society and the environment thus this is a byproduct right and it's interesting to me how businesses be, like, came to be so big, uh, why the Glass-Steagall Act was important. Um, and I think that also kind of blew up in FDR's face after they put it in, into placement because I was just reading a book about the failure of Harvard Business School and how people are, uh, and especially consultants, the McKinsey's uh, in the, of the world, um, when that happens, the only people that can communicate your business model to each other and, and communicate together were consultants. So this became the way they were communicating, uh, communicating together, um, practicing the same business models, uh, and effectively um, maximizing shareholder value, not taking into account um, the stakeholders of the world, not uh, aligning a purpose of the original intent, intent of that company to solve that problem. Uh, so let's stick on Milton Friedman's case. Speaking of shareholder capitalism, um, he goes in his uh, document, if, if you're out there listening to this, it's six pages long. Uh, it's, it's a pretty easy read uh, compared to uh, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations that we might dive into later. Uh, but Milton Friedman basically says this, um, that the, the business 
the business of business is to maximize shareholder value. The social responsibility of a company is to make profits for its shareholders, which then if they have the social conscious to um, direct those funds to uh, corporate social responsibilities or charities, they can do so. Um, he goes on to say a corporation is an art- artificial person and in this sense may have artificial responsibilities, but business as a whole cannot be said to have responsibilities even in this vague sense. The first step toward clarity in examining the doctrine of the social responsibility of business is to ask precisely what it implies for whom. So Omar, uh, you have some knowledge of the uh, Milton Friedman's doc- doctrine here. Uh, you've thought about it uh, quite some, quite a bit for quite some time, I'm sure, asked a lot of questions about it. What is the failure and what is the misconception of this document that you have come to? Well, I, I think, again, we have to look at, at Friedman, a celebrated Nobel laureate, and, and where, he, where he was sitting when he made that statement, I believe it was 1970, yeah. uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct, roughly yeah, around the period. Um, so, and, 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 and I think we have to look at the context of, of where, where the economy was, where society was, where there was, at that point now, we're beginning to see corporations, you know, get bigger and bigger as your early comment was how did they get so big at, at that time um that and, and you have to balance that i think also to some extent of the keynesian approach the, the other kind of uh, predominant economic thinking from john maynard Keynes here in britain at, at the time but i'm by no means an, an expert across these you know these, these different um uh, theories uh, at, at the time but one thing to me was was fascinating where you had at that exact same time, people like, I think it was the chairman of, of the Quaker Oats Company in 1979, you know, nearly kind of dismissing that view from Friedman saying, well, look, it's, it's like saying, I think his, his, his analysis of it was saying, it was like saying you need food to stay alive is the exact same way corporations need profits, you know, shareholders need, need profits, but the purpose of staying alive is not to eat food it has to be above and beyond that it has to be broader you know and 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 as i mentioned earlier jack welsh as well also had his you know disagreements with that arguably you know at the time was most celebrated ceo of the century you know um with, with, with ge um at the time so it's um I, I, what i find fascinating is Yes, there's a hard focus on commercial, and sometimes that's required when you're breaking out of a backdrop of so much government interference, you know, post-World War II, everything else, when it's when highly, the unions, for example, in Britain, under, under the Labour government pre-Thatcher, really taking control of markets. And when you're trying to break out of that, sometimes your narrative does move a bit more aggressively towards the counter view, because, because of that dominant... Uh, uh, position that's and, and paradigm that's that's remained there, uh, but if you if you take it, so that's why it's important to take his words in context. I feel you know, but then by extension, you take that further out. The next fifty years, it's led to this unchecked capitalism. You know, the, the space where where it's become all about uh, uh, as as even Hollywood as Wall Street. You know, kind of put it greed is good, right? Uh, in in, uh, in in the late nineties and in, in the Wall Street movie, so. 
that leads us to a different paradigm. And then we get the correction again, which I think we're now seeing. Kevin, this is, I really think the last few years we're beginning to see this correction again, where there's now this emergence of, you know what, we need to return the oscillation towards, towards you know, um, a broader society, broader social purpose, you know? And the irony of it all, I, I personally feel, having grown up in, in, in Scotland, is it goes back to me in a, in a weird way. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert in the deep theology whatsoever, but I've, 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 I've done my readings of the wealth of nations uh, and the work of Adam Smith in the, in the period of Scottish Enlightenment. And this is why we actually found Edinburgh to be a great home for our work. Um, of, of the Global Ethical Finance Initiative, as we as, as we see, it's got a fantastic history in in finance, in in prudent finance, and in ethical finance. And it goes back to that fundamental position. I think Smith was trying to reconcile between two of his great mentors and, and friends, between Hutchison and Hume, where Hume's predominant theory was of self-interest. You know, so I can see that self-interest. Profit maximization, me, me, me. And, and, and Hutchison was more of a man of God who said, no, you do things because of its innate goodness and, and the goodness that you can bring to others uh, and, and the social purpose around that. So I see that oscillation, which Adam Smith two centuries ago had to reconcile. And the irony is when, 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 you, when you strip it all back today and, and financial services as a sector is full of jargon. You know, we make our own jargon for, for sometimes. I don't know why. Someone's talking to me about landing strips the other day, one of the traders, and I was like, what, really? You know, you know, and he was explaining to me all these. So then if you remember Bernie Madoff, his split strike options, you know, which nobody knew in because it was apparently half made up term. Um, it, it's when you strip it all back down, it seems to me it has the current paradigm has exact same shades of that same oscillation, you know, between goodness for everyone, for a broader goodness, and personal gain, you know, self-interest. Um, and so many people, I think, can forget that Adam Smith, you know, renowned as the father of modern-day capitalism, uh, a great Scot, but also they forget his, his, his primary work was the theory of moral sentiments. And he was a chair of moral philosophy at, at Glasgow University. So I, I, I think people forget that piece, you know, yeah, which is very, very important in understanding his psyche, his makeup, and understanding the purpose of an economy. Um, remember last year, I, I had the pleasure of being at a, at a debate session in Panyor House, which was the last uh, residence of Adam Smith just off the Royal Mile next to nearby, near Edinburgh Castle and, and the, the new parliament building. And we were asked to share one of our, you know, most liked quotes from Adam Smith. Um, and, and, and I reflected on one, which was, I can't remember exactly, but it was basically the, the, the point was, you know, part of a society can truly um, be, be, be happy if the greater part of it is not flourishing, you know, no, no, no society can, can truly flourish if the greater part of it is unhappy. Some, what, what's that effect, basically, right? Um, basically showing that the need, that the need for the markets and to serve society, ultimately, and not the other way around. Mm. So in that sense, a business in the people in it uh, may have a responsibility um, and that responsibility may be just to establish a purpose. Uh, I think uh, the uh, Adam Smith 
you know, message in the, uh, where was it? The wealth of nations here. Um, you know, the great secret of education is to direct vanity to proper objects, uh, a purpose, a, a, uh, a pride in one's own achievement. And I think what he did is, uh, he established roles in the, to increase productivity and time, uh, for organizations. And, you know, you, if you're a button maker and the hardest job of the button making, uh, uh, responsibility was to package the boxes that the the box packagers would be paid more while the button say labelers would be paid less and it was a division of labor in that sense but what he was saying is the purpose of that button might be for good it might be for you know today's black lives matter movement and you know you have a responsibility in that and if you can see that purpose that north star that we've kind of been referring to this may increase your productivity. So I think that's what we mean by stakeholder capitalism today. You know, you are providing and adding value uh, throughout your value chain to your suppliers, your distributors, uh, the raw materials, uh, customer support and marketing. And as you continue to grow, the purpose and the decisions that you make are the core driver of growth so that you make more money, you intentionally solve that problem of that Black Lives Matter movement um, of what that what that purpose would be. Um, how do do you see now you're, you're in finance. Uh, we've been talking a lot about profitability and the stakeholder capitalism. Uh, I spoke with the CEO the other day, they uh, build schools in India for their suppliers. They think it's a great way to increase, uh, employee satisfaction over there. They don't see it as charity. They see it as an investment. Uh, Omar, do you think that there's a trade-off, um, of stakeholder capitalism or do you see it more maybe as an investment? Well, it's interesting. I think there's two ways you can cut this. Um, one is to say, you know, in the way, in, in the example you've just described, that would go to Friedman's point, you know, that it's not their role to build those schools, right? You know, it's, it's you're taking money away from the shareholder or you're taking money away from other employees because you're using that money there. Um, so on the one end, you've got that. And, and on the other end, as we're seeing today, businesses and being purpose driven and having a wider understanding and realization of your role in society, you see that, um, that, 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 that creation of a school is absolutely aligned with that thinking, you know, and traditionally you're right. Some people would have seen that as their CSR or it would have been their marketing piece or whatever that is, you know, do something good for the brochure. Uh, but now increasingly they're seeing, seeing that in a different way. And I think it's different between, Corporates, multinational corporates, large companies, listed companies, and family-owned businesses as well. Um, I, th- I think there's, there's this differences in culture there that come through as well. But to me, one of the key things though still remains is the fact that we we're even asking this question is because there's a gap, and that gap simply is corporates, limited liability, legal entities which exist indefinitely. Yeah. Unlike a human being or a family business or a traditional merchant, in you know many centuries ago, they are only regulated or held to account for very specific things, right? So you have to publish your accounts, you have to follow certain governance standards, your certain business laws, and so on and so forth, right? And 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 within that, there's gaps. So within that, you don't have to report on what damage you're doing to society yeah right. where's your non-financial reporting standards which they're now increasingly building and developing right um there's there's no 
you know, there's not enough onus or requirement of that. Give me a number. See all that damage as a byproduct of using finite resources or doing whatever that is, right? Um, or, or, all of that, you know, give me a number for that. Stick it on my balance sheet. Hmm. Yeah. I don't have to, right? I don't have, I, I just need to give my P&L and my, my margins and uh, et cetera, right? So, so actually, the, that part, the, there's a gap tradition in, in, our typical, in our traditional accounting requirements for that and our reporting requirements for that. And that's now beginning to get addressed with things like TCFD and other initiatives from, from central banks. But that's what's enabled that kind of, in my view, the, the, the mismatch or the, the, this to get unbalanced, you know, uh, in, in the first place. And, 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 and one thing, though, we should say about, about Friedman, he did say in his comment that the basic, you know, yes, the role of business is to make as much money, you know, for, for shareholders. But the, he also said that has to be done following the basic rules of society. And when he said that, he qualified it in two ways. He said basic rules being the law and the other one being the ethical custom as well, which indicates that hold on, there is a social responsibility and a social role of businesses. Yeah. Mm. Now, if you force companies to to to, to follow business rules for um, uh, you know for, for financial reporting the way we do, yeah, and we have company law alongside that, and we have some governance laws, etc., then that's what they're going to do. If you don't have much around their social responsibility and are they following? you know, the, the, the ethical customs, as Friedman's words were, right, of society, then they're not going to report much in it. And if it's not reported, if it's not counted for, you know, and not valued, then it's not relevant, unfortunately. Another problem, aside from the jargon, there's tons of jargon out there, too much in the impact space. We're working to define these terms. But um, another problem I have or that I've experienced is a lot of organizations um, – are greenwashing. This is a concept where their sustainability is more market driven, uh, marketing driven versus operational driven. Uh, how do you see, um, you know, a lot of people say, okay, who, who are the purpose police here? I don't think that's what we're trying to do. But um, how do you distinguish uh, a business um, that is intentionally trying to solve or report specific problems versus a, a company who's just trying to um, publicize that they have made a few changes to their company. Very difficult challenge. I mean, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great question, and that sits at the heart of authenticity. Mm. And we need to crack this authenticity challenge um, to 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 really get critical mass and buy-in in this sector. You know, across everyone, be that you as a depositor, or you as a pension, your your individual pension, uh, or 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 you as an employee in which company you're choosing and so you know, so on and so forth. So it, it's a very difficult one to, to think, but I, I do think there are a few indicators. There are different um, standards or, or initiatives you can sign up to, like a blueprint for a better business. You've got B Corps, you've got, um, uh, you know, different initiatives, which, um, which are being led. There's some good ones out of us as well. You've got people who sign up to global principles like the principles of responsible investing and principles of responsible banking, you know, some financial institutions who, who, who and asset owners and asset managers signing up to that. So th there are indicators out there, um, but I think one of the truest tests is um, leadership and culture. 
And that's a very difficult one, again, to, to fully measure, right? Um, but it, that, that will really drive and, and you'll see it permeate. And yes, you might need some specialized lenses to understand it. I'm not saying it's easy to do that. There are, there's still a need for some kind of kite mark. The problem is there's so many different initiatives that are that are you know springing up in this sector. It makes sometimes it, it makes it complex and complicated to understand what's what, who's doing what, where, and, and sometimes increases the risk of greenwashing. You know because mm. of these taxonomy issues and a number of people are greenwashing right now. There's no doubt about it. You know you got funds which are putting the money in U.S. Treasury bills and saying, and this is just a, it's a valid position, that's a green fund because we're funding the government where the U.S. government's pulled out from the, the, the kind of uh, kind of highest climate targets and, and so on. Yeah. Um, so there's, there are complications, there are differences in interpretation, there are real issues here, Kevin. So that question is remains to be fully answered, I think. No one's really cracked it, mm. but you but you can have enough of an educated um, kind of position by seeing who's actually signing up to what. So we released a big report a couple of weeks ago on, on the state of the ethical finance market in Edinburgh. And you've got people who've signed up to global initiatives such as the PRI. But actually, when you go and analyze their website, it's very little there. The, the SRI policy is maybe a few words copied, pasted somewhere else down the bottom. And then you've got others who have done a heck of a lot of work and created their own proprietary frameworks for understanding it, for framing it, how they take take the PRI and, and put that into their own investment philosophy and so on and so forth. So it's it's a difficult one. You know, you've got people now, because it's become, you know, it's become important, it's become top, you know, one of the top you know, commercial factors. You could have someone who sells, you know, uh, he serves, you know, he's got a shop in maybe a rundown part of uh, of the town, yeah, and he's an ethical business because he's he's serving low income um, customers, you know. So all of a sudden, I'm ethical because I serve low income customers because my shop, my store, my convenience store is in is in this part of town, right? Mm. Which is a deprived area. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. Is are you just saying that now because it's nice to say that, you know? No, no, I serve them and we serve them and they keep coming back to buy more from us and we, you know, we're reasonably priced, you know, mm. kind of thing. So I think truly purpose-driven versus aligning to the current mood music are two different things. And you, you begin to see who's sitting where and who's trying to navigate this new this new kind of um, paradigm as well. So uh, it's a difficult one to see it, but you know, you'll see some really great examples of companies which are genuinely, you know, purpose-driven. And I think it just shines out, it shines out in the culture, in the people, in the leaders, in the, in the, in the narrative, in the communications, you know, it really does. And then there's others who are maybe trying to tag, tag it in somewhere and they don't really know how and where, and they can have good hearts. They could be good people trying to figure it out, you know, and then there's others who are just simply, you know, just, Putting a label on it right now because it's a cool label to have. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, and I, I don't think there really is one. Um, yeah, there's so many different examples. It's like when I was first starting out, I was trying to understand. This, I was like, well, why isn't a 
dentistry is social enterprise. They clean teeth, you know, they help, you know, all diseases, not all diseases, but many diseases come through and enter through your mouth. Like they are a great asset to uh, make healthier lives and healthier people. Uh, and and I asked someone that question. Said, "Well, I never really thought about it like that." You know, it's it's an interesting take. Um, some people define it in different types of ways, but I'm not going to attempt to go down that route right now. What I want to know, Omar, is what have been. You've mentioned frameworks. You mentioned SDGs. What are some of the financial instruments that have been effective in terms of uh, driving growth uh, in a responsible way? Yeah, so what's what we're seeing across um, financial institutions is that there are, are our main stakeholders that we engage with. So obviously, you've seen the the emergence of um, climate bonds. You know, the whole climate finance sector. You know, you've over about climate aligned bonds are reported at over kind of one and a half trillion. Um, you know, that was probably eighteen months back, so it should be more than that. Um, you've got. Uh, social impact bonds as well, which are new innovative instruments, uh, much smaller market, um, but but a fascinating space in the fixed income uh, area. Um, that's probably around half a billion at best, you know, right now. Um, you've got the world of some of the, the faith-based finance, so Islamic finance, uh, and you've done a lot of work. The UK government's done a lot of work in actually, uh, along with other governments. That's, you know, the fixed income Sukuk market there is probably over 150 billion currently um, of, of uh, probably 120 to 150 uh, in, 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 in issuances currently out there. So within fixed income, we're seeing that kind of space. Um, green bonds, again, a huge, huge opportunity. Within, within, uh, within the, the, the kind of equities world, you know, obviously you've got your screens, you've got your screening methodologies that are being applied in a whole host of different, um, you know, kind of negative screening. Apparently there's nearly, you know, um, nearly probably 19 to $20 trillion of money that's managed using negative screens, i.e. so you take out sectors which are deemed harmful to society. So people might screen out pornography or, or, or gambling or tobacco and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then you have others who, who, who take more ESG, environmental, social and governance factors, and they actively integrate that into their equities uh, strategy. And there's probably around 17 and a half trillion roughly there. Uh, plus, um, these are all kind of GSI numbers that they've, they, they've quoted um, sources from there. The just the, the, the PRI, the principles of responsible investing, is one that I mentioned, which were issued by the United Nations. Um, they have, I think, the UN PRI website's got the states roughly 3,000, just over 3,000 signatories who collectively manage around $86 trillion. So that's a considerable amount. And that was for, again, that's all the investment management world. And then if you go into the banking world, what we're seeing, Kevin, is the UNPRB, which is a recent uh, law, uh, set of principles by the United Nations, Principles for Responsible Banking. They also have an insurance one as well. Um, and it's interesting to see the time lag between banking and, and investment management. So there's nearly 10 years after PRI is launched, probably more, uh, that you're now seeing the banking principles. And, and what are we seeing in banking? Well, we're seeing banks beginning to lend, uh, at least in Britain, we've seen like green mortgages being issued by Barclays Bank. We're seeing banks committing to decarbonizing their lending portfolios. So Lloyds Banking Group saying that they're going to go to a net zero position or um, and others wanted to go to a Paris aligned position. 
So when they are lending out to their customers, they will be saying to them, what is your carbon footprint, right? They'll be, they'll be analyzing, onboarding that information and so on and so forth. And off the back of that, the bonds are then, the, the, the banks are then actually able to issue bonds to the market off their own balance sheets, their own green bonds, or, and indeed we've seen HSBC issue an SDG, a Sustainable Development Goals uh, bond uh, as well. Other movements we're seeing in, in the banking sector includes regulators, um, how they're acting, so capital requirements for banks, um, reducing, incentivizing them to do green lending. We've seen that in China. Um, in, in Europe, we're seeing more the case of enhancing disclosure through TCFD, um, trans, uh, uh, the Task Force Climate Disclosure uh, work. Um, um, uh, for, uh, so, so, so that's what we're, we're seeing in, in, in the market. Of course, there's also the emergence of impact investing as well, which is kind of saying very overtly, and again, like your dentistry example, everything has an impact. Uh, it can be positive or negative. It's just they're adding this new lens on to say, no, this is proactive impact investing. And, and, and Jin have that market roughly at around, I think, 500 billion roughly, probably more than that now, um, as a global kind of size of the impact investment network. So uh, um, that's what we're seeing. As, as some of the, the recent trends over the last kind of five to 10 years in, in climate finance and impact investing and in social impact bonds in uh, standards through the UN and others, including green loan principles and green banking, uh, green banking, um, green loan principles and green bond principles and climate bonds initiative. Um, and you're also seeing regulators move in the way that I've, I've mentioned. So, that's a quick summary of a you know touch points. Yeah, it's a bit technical in, in that, but point is it's happening. People are trying. Innovation uh, is is occurring, and and this oscillation back to finance, you know, with some purpose of finance being checked against some parameters, is is very much live and happening. You know. Just, just a few examples. You know, I, I, I don't think there's an excuse nowadays that you cannot use financial instruments like this. I mean, I think you just rattled off about 30, 30 of them or so, and they're out there. And impact, you just bring that back up again. And, and I know I said I, w- I wasn't going to define this today, but um, you know, for an entity, what is impact to me? I've had it explained as uh, impact is uh, transforming lives. Uh, so it's the intention to transform lives. Is that really what your business model is built around? Um, uh, what in- intentionally is it? Uh, you know, if you if you are a um, uh, trying to help out basket weavers in Guatemala, uh, are you going to pay them money to support their um, income, or are you going to help them create efficient, streamlined processes so they can consistently? Uh, bang out uh, nice weave bags to and then pay them fair wages to transform their lives it's the difference between entrepreneurship and charity uh, for me Um, uh, it's a stakeholder approach versus a csr give back model i think that's really the difference for me Um, now you've had this experience you just mentioned you rattle off all those financial instruments that can uh, that can help how difficult is is it for a startup if entrepreneurism is what's making it free markets nowadays, how difficult is it for a startup to start out uh, making the right decisions 
Uh, or do you see a lot of entrepreneurs kind of starting off, going their own path and trying to get back? Two things with that. One, can if I can go back one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. On, there's an assumption here that um, at the end of it all, we've economically empowered someone else. We've made someone's life better. Like mm-hmm. you, you were saying, yeah. Is better economic empowerment only? I don't know, but that's how we measure it right now, don't we? So this is where people like Paul Pullman, former you know Unilever CEO and uh, our first minister of Scotland, um, has been talking about GDP and going beyond GDP, mm. happiness, bringing in these other factors, you know, and and, and living a life within your means, living a life with simplicity could sometimes be a lot happier than than what we might think. And and it's something which really struck me because I spent a lot of time in Africa, spent nearly five years doing a lot of work in financial inclusion with some of the leading NGOs there um, a few years back. And, and it often hit me how they smile, how happy they are as people, but they have so little. And when I come back to London, you know, uh, there's a stiff upper lip, there's everyone's a bit grumpy and stuck on the tube and, and so on, you know? So true. Uh, and then, then you see the you know other lifestyles, you know, I'd see in, in, in the offices of some of the people I've worked with in Dubai, very ostentatious, you know, um, glitz and glam, new city and so on. And and, and often I would reflect on, on that exact point, James, that actually, where are we trying to take people to? You know, where, where are we trying to get them to? Are we trying to empower financial inclusion but we have a financial system, a model which we've created in the global north, which we know has failed and led to financial crises. Hmm. And we're trying to get these people to come into this. You know, I, I, I get the position of anti-quality. I totally understand that. Uh, I understand about the creating opportunity for everyone. I understand about basic um, um, protections of health and, and, and life and, and so on and so forth. But actually, there's a lot more to it. Um, and if you look at some spiritualists, you know, and, and some of the faith traditions, the Abrahamic faith traditions, you know, they've probably got more against, they've got more issues probably against anti-extreme wealth than they have against, you know, poverty. You know, uh, no one wants poverty. There, there has to be that minimum thing. But some people can choose to live a simple life, you know, because there's more, uh, in, in, in Arabic, we have a, a word called baraka. There's more blessings in, in simplicity. It's mm. not something you can put you can put into into a discounted cash flow into Excel or into an NPV formula. So at, at first, I think there's there's an assumption there, and I think Nicholas Sturgeon's TED talk was a great great piece on that. You know uh, about looking at GDP and looking beyond GDP. You know is that the right measure for our societies uh, today? And a lot of good work has been done by We All and the Wellbeing Alliance to to look at that to, to ch- again shift the mind out of these parameters that we've. That we've ended up nudging towards, and 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 that will then cause to ultimately an ontological position, which answers your question about how you know difficult is it for an entrepreneur today. Well, well, well I would argue, you know, it, it comes down to their philosophy of life, and it isn't difficult at all, you know. And some of the best businesses we know were created to 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 be the best at whatever their service they're providing, you know, to to improve. The, an experience or to have an actual purpose that why question rather than how much question you know can i make out of this yeah 
Uh, and and we, we had a great roundtable with some millennials looking at the millennials' appetite for ethical finance. And it was great to learn from them and to, to hear their views about how they are now because they've come out in a market which is which is even there's no concept of job for life you know like my father had many years ago or, or there's job certainty at all it's been hugely uncertain and difficult times for them so they've they've what they've gone to do has been a lot more purpose driven many people have not uh, have left uh, uh, jobs and financial services or opted not to go into that sector because of the the, the malaise that is was created off the back of the financial crisis um and they, they seem to have a lot more of a kind of purpose-driven mindset, you know, in this whole world of conscious consumerism. And we've also we've also seen it through employers who, uh, and I think it was again it was Paul Foreman who, who I remember once making a comment that they took they had the same job, they made two job specs for the same job. One was focused on its purpose and how it benefits society at large, and the other one was this is the pay, this is the bonus, this is you know whatever else you know. And they had, uh, they had, they had exfold more applicants for for the one where the job was crafted in line with with its social mandate and, and benefits. Um, and I think you'll get a lot more longevity with the people you're working with, you know, in terms of employees, in terms of customers, and and so on and so forth. So I think it's absolutely there. I think it's embedded within the mindsets of a lot of millennials, a lot more than the previous generations do them, frankly. Uh, before them, and, and 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 I think it's always been there. It's, it's you know, the old family-owned businesses will tell you, you know, it's about you know being there with your customers, being there with your suppliers, being there with your employees, you know. Um, so it's absolutely part and parcel of actually having a successful business. It's not a, a nice to do or an add-on or something abstract that we now need to incorporate and sign up to some principles or sign up to some standards. No, it's absolutely fundamental to a successful business, I, I, I believe. Yeah. Now, Omar, uh, if any historian listening to this right now will understand that this has been a conversation, it's 2020, this has been a conversation in 1970, as we just pointed out. This is a conversation in 1920. This is a conversation uh, back when the Luddites were around and were breaking down uh, English uh, mill factories because they didn't believe in technology. They thought that was evil. Um, and uh, we're, we're, t- we're talking about Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, and the goal of this is to be profitable and civilized. Are we, you, you and I, sitting at a point where uh, we have thought about this, we've discussed this, yet I personally haven't lived in that poverty. I personally haven't found um, uh, that I want to be a simple is this an elitist view? You know, some people might say this is an elitist view that that you don't really understand to stay away. At what point, though, throughout history, do you think we will come to when we will be ready to make a change? And I'm not saying it will ever be perfect, but when do you think we will be able to make a change to effectively um, create happiness and and merge that into a business setting. <laughs> Very good question. Um, and, no and right probably, probably the the question, you know, um, and it starts from the point that what you're saying in that question is is that we're at an unhappy place right now. You know, there is an issue. Um, 
And I think this constant material consumption, you know, unchecked capitalism, keeping up with the Joneses, all of these things mm. that we've experienced in the global north, you know, uh, and benefited from. And if you haven't had a real anchor to see what it's like in poverty and so on and so forth, you would address you know this this question differently. Um, I genuinely think we're at a tipping point. We're coming to that that piece. I'm sure there's many more experts, much better-read economic historians than me out there who can answer that this much better with more evidence and data. You know, Niall Ferguson and others have done some phenomenal work, but it's, uh, you know, I, I do, you know, his, his book on why nations fail is, is fascinating, but I do think we are really at a tipping point. I really do. Um, you know, we're talking about more or less flatline GDP, um, you know, flatline growth levels in the global north, right? Compared to China and, and India and, and certain emerging markets. Africa is the only continent left, you know, where, where there's an opportunity. And Jamie Dimon and others have already been in there for the last decade, right? Uh, trying to, we, we have hit the, you know, planetary boundaries of what we have. And now we're getting hit back with climate change, with biodiversity loss, with, with you know, phenomenal um, wildfires which are which are occurring. So this is hitting us and it's checking us. It's making us realize what's happening. And COVID, indeed, for that matter, is a great example mm. uh, of that as well, which is going to plunge us into an even deeper recession. We were struggling to get you know two three percent growth, and now we're now we're talking about the mother of all recessions in mm. front of our face happening. So I, I genuinely think we're at a tipping point now. And, and and people are now genuinely asking this other question that the economic system we has prevailed over the last you know five centuries I would say um, so over the last fifty years five decades um, ha- has reached its max possibly you know um, for us and w- we need to figure out alternative ways it's the economies of landed you know as as um, a friend of mine has just you know published a book on on that. We, we need to think of alternative ways. We need to think of alternative measures to broaden that, you know. Um, and I think it has to happen now, mm. you know. And it is happening now because of, of what you see just around 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 all sorts of movements from the fair trade, from conscious consumerism to you know, the disruption, from the extinction rebellion, etc. You know. And and I hope, I really hope, we can find this happiness and peace in less, you know rather than always trying to seek more and keep up with the Joneses. But if we can find, as, as Gandhi said, there's enough in the world for everyone's need, not for everyone's greed, you know? Mm. Uh, so I think if we can do that at an individual level and we can use technology to enhance transparency and choice for us individually and hold our financial institutions to account, where is my pension invested? Am I happy with that? Am I comfortable with that? And I actually think for the first time, this old intermediation role, fundamentally this intermediation role um, that banks have served and other financial institutions have served, you know, you just give us the money, we'll manage it and we'll manage it according to, you know, or, or whatever jargon and, and, and narratives are prevailing at the time. But if you start to say to people, you know what, if you take my money and you invest it in a local, um, in a local nursery, or in a local school, and I only get five percent return, versus taking my money and putting it in a in, in a in a sweatshop in 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 Bangladesh or China somewhere, you know, making 
nice luxury, you know, whatever, you know, chandeliers, you know, for high-end house, then I get 7% return. You know, I think people, many people will begin to opt for that 5% because it helps the local community and it has something with social purpose. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, we've never, ever had that transparency or that choice. And for the first time ever, uh, financial technology, fintech world is enabling that. So I, I really think we're at we're at this turning point, but it will be a difficult pill for a lot of us to swallow, I reckon, yeah, because it does mean the lifestyles possibly that we've been leading and what we've been seeking through these, we're gonna have to reflect in a in a different way, maybe a more spiritual way, maybe some some other component, you know. Um, but if you want to break out of 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 pure money. Then you have to think with your heart, not just in, not just with your head in your pocket, you know. It, yeah, and and there's a paradox, and I think I even maybe maybe it was an article I read of yours uh, talking about like what's on the horizon, and like this understands like yeah, we can kind of see what's happening, but we're not going to make change until it actually occurs. Uh, climate change, uh, something that doesn't really have a face or um, an immediate impact to some of us. It's going to take a, l- a long time. And even if wildfires happen in your area, you might not still contribute that to the external costs of capitalism or agriculture or anything like that. Um, I was speaking with somebody yesterday, Omar. Uh, he's the CEO of a nonprofit called One Tree Planet. And I asked him what's the biggest threat to deforestation. And he told me population increase. It's a population increase. And I thought about that a little bit. I was like, interesting. Um, Nothing about business, nothing about anything else. It's just population. More people creates more problems, more money, more problems, um, as the late, great, notorious B.I.G. said. Uh, now, we think about this and the impact asset, assets allocation over time has increased. We have uh, we are there are now more funds than ever into social impact, into environmental impact. You just mentioned and listed off 20 or so financial instruments that are directly impacting the environment, yet the problems continue to increase. The, the globe is getting warmer and warmer. Do you think that these changes can slow down the effect of, uh, of capitalism and in, in just human nature in general? And is, is it time to uh, think about another solution? Yeah, so takes us to Avengers movie, isn't it? The end game. Yeah, kill half the population, you know, let's do a mass culling. Or we take the Chinese approach of one one child per family, you know, that they, they implemented. Look, I I I ultimately I'm an optimist. Ultimately I believe in in goodness and justice. And if we can implement that with our brains and with financial systems that appreciate reward that rather than financial systems that just purely reward you know, profiteering uh, and, and margins, you know, making the best possible margins, then I do think we can get a solution to this. Absolutely do. Um, I mean, obesity probably kills more, more lives and is more of a problem than, than hunger, you know? Um, and, and if you look at the disparity between global populations and, and the haves and the have-nots, it's just, uh, just crazy, right? And so much of this has been accentuated by financial engineering and, and companies with intangibles and how we value that and how we've created money. I mean, this whole COVID crisis has proven to us, Kevin, that we can put humanity first ahead of the economy. 
And yes, some cynics will say the financial wizards will benefit through $6 trillion of stimulus somewhere, right? Because does it really align with the real economy? The financial service economy, the front page, front cover of The Economist recently was talking exactly about this. Mm. But it's, I, I think we can. We can do this. And we genuinely can if we just change our thinking, if we unplug the mindsets and the plumbing that we've had to date in a post-industrial world and in, in a new carbon world since we've realized fossil fuels and so on and so forth. A lot of this, uh, you know, we've had designed obsolescence going on for, for, for the last few, few decades, you know, where things are just designed to, to fail, you know, intentionally so you mm -hmm. can buy them again, you know. We've had this throwaway culture. We've had fast fashion. We as humans can all just take a bit of responsibility on this. And if our governments and, and the bigger authorities give give us um, can, can take the right policies, I'm genuinely hopeful that we can make a real change. And, and the ability of that human spirit of innovation, you, know, you apply those minds to carbon capture technology, you can really begin to make massive changes. You apply those brain cells to different forms of agriculture or repairing um, land like we've got in Scotland. Uh, you know, we've got a huge amount of lands in the Highland which we have to repair and become massive carbon capture supports, you know. Um, so so we can do it. I genuinely can do it. I've seen enough hope out there to, to prove that, you know. Uh, and yes, people might feel a bit, you know, I can understand why because if you take your Unilevers of the world and your, your big corporates, that your Nestle's, and we had them all last year, looking at sustainable supply chains, looking at this uh, finance for nature, and you see that palm oil, such an important ingredient, and, and, and their actual, you know, the, the biggest, you know, buyers of palm oil from, you know, the, the, the kind of corporates, Western corporates, is still just a fraction compared to those from China and, and, and India we purchase it. So I think, well, you know, if we did change our policies, we'd only influence 15% of the market. So can we really do much? No, we can, we absolutely can. And if China and India take that step up, you know, um, and, and look longer and, and look deeper down that supply chain and look at these issues, I think those markets can equally make massive, massive uh, impacts. But I would, err with my gut feel, it could be totally wrong, but my gut feel is, you know, you, you, you can have sustainable farming. You can do it. We know you can do it, right? Everything's there. It's enforcement of that, which is critical. Right, we don't need to deforest. We don't need the rate of deforestation in the Amazon. We can we can we can give financial incentives to make it cheaper to 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 purchase palm oil from certain restricted zones within the Amazon. Anyone who wants to you know buy it from anywhere else, it's taxed or it's more expensive or whatever else is, or even it's just free green shipping for any palm oil produced in in those particular zones. So we can change the incentives. If we're smart about it, you know, to 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 tackle some of these these big issues that you're mentioning, Kevin, and 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 as I, I really do think, as Gandhi said, as I mentioned earlier, there is enough there for everyone's need, not for our greeds, mm. and it's that easy way out. No, I'll just just go and knock down the next 50 acres of, of land, you know, convert that into palm, you know, palm oil, um, you know, uh, producing you know things because it's easier to do, you know. Omar, so, you, you, yeah. just, you just told me um, we can change and the time is now. When you first set out on your journey, like we touched on earlier, did a lot of people take you seriously? 
Uh, honestly, Kevin, I, I you know, as I, I worked in the city in London for the best part of a decade and worked out at golf, and then I, I eventually just left. I left in 2010. I wasn't fully sure what I was going to do next, but I knew that I had a, a desire to explore further, learn more, understand better, you know, this, this alternative financial systems. Um, and it was back then in the late 90s and, and the early 2000s, I'm still relatively young in my career. I'm just a lot more wiser people than me out there, been around longer, but it was, you know, it was a lone voice. It was for tree huggers, for hippies, or it was a haircut on performance, you know, or some faithy guys, you know, the, the, the Methodist or someone like that, right? The, uh, or, the, or the Church of England has got a department somewhere, you know. It was, for, it was, it was very, you know, kind of uh, uh, marginal for sure. Um, and now you can't pick up a magazine at the Chartered Accountant Professions or the Chartered Bankers profession, you know, or CISI, the investment institutions, you know, CFA guys without every day an article or, or a webinar on ESG or responsible investing on impact and sustainability. You can't pick it. It's impossible not to see it now. So absolutely it's changed. The mood music has changed massively. Um, there's a lot more qualifications out there. Chartered Banker and CISI have just launched a, a big green finance qualification. You know, there's there's a lot a lot more happening now. So I think whilst initially one can be cynical of greenwashing and things are never going to change and, and all of that, which I probably did feel it sometimes on the tube in London. I remember reading the book and confessions of an economic hitman and, and so on, thinking my words, you know, this sure. is where we where we're we going with this. And the other week then reading the book from the Grameen Bank, Nobel laureate banker to the poor Mohammed Yunus, who created the world of these um um uh the, the, these these community banks that he he, he did. Um and you know, microfinance and, and so on. You know, I, 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 it, it does sometimes feel like, you know, you're up against it, it's not going to happen and you'll always remain marginalized. But the only thing that gives me confidence, and frankly, I only got it sticking at it for around 15 years, right, is that now I've got this purview and I say, whoa, hold on a minute, let me tell you how this has changed massively in 15 years. And if we can change this much in that amount of time, mm. you know, Hopefully the curve is, is 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 more of a hockey stick. Then we can make a lot more steps going forward. So I am actually very very optimistic for for where this is going and where the future is. Yes, we will have challenges. Yes, um, there will be points where it's like that that grandfather clock. The the, the the pendulum has got to the top. Now it's beginning to swing swing back in this way of social purpose. Hmm. You know, I like that broad goodness away from that extreme form of self interest. You know. And that's that we we adhere towards. So it will happen. It's happening, and um, I, I, I'm I'm really really fascinated and excited to continue to learn more. As much smarter brains are out there engaging in this and coming out with better ideas and standards and, and things. So no, I'm positive. So now that it actually is happening. Well, what do you have to say about the leadership that is needed to uh, effectively pursue and radically change something like this? Yeah. Maybe I'm going to be a bit controversial here, Kevin, but I'm 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 in in a bit of favor of of um, I'm probably a bit more of a radical in that sense. There's always been a, a few great 
bright sparks out there, a few pioneers, your Paul Pullman's, uh, you know, I think, etc. But what tends to happen when the mood music changes and this becomes the new norm is the conventional leaders jump on the bandwagon. And that's where I'm concerned. That's where my fear sits, is that the old mindsets, they just come talk to the new hymn sheet. Yeah. Would you actually, and, and you know, when, you, when you've got that old mindset, consciously and subconsciously, you have biases, you have, you just have, you know, certain um, perspectives which are drilled in through your training, through your background, through your work, through your experiences. But, but I actually think we're in a very different world to, to where I've seen a huge change and I've just been in financial services for maybe just over, just over two decades. And it's been massive change, right? And some of those catalysts of change uh, include financial technology, fintech, right? Uh, post Big Bang and, and, and globalization and so on. So I think that levers for change are a lot more powerful now uh, than they have been before. And there's a danger that the old mindset doesn't fully get it and they are they have their, their, their blinkers and sometimes it's part of that lip service to to this new to this new um, you know new mood music I like to see these leaders in, engaging but I like to see them complemented and augmented by multidiscipline approaches you know what I mean people from a different perspective being a bit more radical a bit more out there you know and pushing new ideas, new agendas within financial services, within business, you know, um, because I think part of being real leaders or true leaders is, 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 is willing to say everything we think we know, right. Or we thought we knew, let's just pause it for a second and put it on the side, right. Mm. How can we do this totally differently? And that's the world of the unknown. And it's a lot harder going off the beaten track into this new unknown world and try to figure out what the question is, let alone the before you can even begin to get the answer, you know? And, and, and to me, they are some of the biggest, you know, most powerful leaders are the ones who've demonstrated that, who've gone through that journey, you know? Um, and, and I think that's the difference. It's not always the output. It's not even always, oh, we've created a successful business. It's great, you know, yada, yada, you know? Um, but actually just having the guts to go off the beaten track and to explore this new paradigm um, in, in a radically different, you know, um, mindset and, and ontology is is to me what's going to be required as part of a collective effort. It's not just those individuals, but they have to augment. Otherwise, we will end up in the same position. Frankly, mm. you know, we will do knee-jerk reactions to financial crises and problems. But then slowly, 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 we'll go back. Glass Eagle, case in point, right? Mm, Etc. Right. It's just going to revert. You know what real fundamental changes have, have happened since the banking crisis? Sometimes I do ask myself, you know, what actually has happened? So we've had to increase capitalization. We said we'd ring fence this. We've put a whole bunch of billions of dollars of fines on banks, but you know, has anyone ever gone back to the Chicago academics who proposed narrow banking? which is your money's not lent out unless you give it the authority to do it. Today, can we go to any bank today, anywhere in the US or anywhere in the UK, and say, right, I want full transparency on where my money's being lent to? I didn't know you had put it in highly you know, speculative subprime-linked financial instruments, mm -hmm. right? 
very few banks can answer that, maybe Triodos and one, two others, you know, at best. But that's not the main mainstay for sure, you know. Um, do, they, do we have transparency on where our pensions are, where they're invested? And if we bring the same leaders who are the leaders of these companies and entities and bring them into these into this current new 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 conversation through maybe new entities, new institutions, new bodies. Are you really going to get the same, you know, much, are you really going to generally expect a hugely different answer, you know? Right, right. I'm sure we have a few blockchain experts. I'd love to talk to you about that. <laughs> and I'm not going to go there at all today. Um, but Omar, that was so beautiful. With all of that being said, uh, rethinking the norm with all of this in mind, the interconnectedness, the purpose of a, of a, of a, of a company, to you, Omar, what is your definition of a real leader? Great, great question. I mean, I think every single one of us is a leader, whether we accept it or not, whether we want to be there or not. I genuinely believe every single one of us has, has some amazing skill that they've been blessed with. I do a lot of work um, with the Princess Trust here, which is the largest youth charity in, in, in Britain, uh, and also with Glasgow Museums on, on some of the heritage work for um, South Asians and ethnic minorities, migrants. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of listening to some of these these, these individuals who, who've come migrated across to foreign lands and set themselves up, you know, and, 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 uh, and led the way to build communities. Or, or to, to youngsters through the Princess Trust work who've, who've led themselves out of very difficult situations and challenges, could be through self-esteem, self-efficacy, whatever, and, and have managed to get themselves a job or managed to then provide for, for, for their, their parents or their families and others or and add back to their community or just even be a, a role model for others. So, so to me, it is, if for me personally, you know, if I answered the question in corporate jargon, it's different. You know, leadership is through teams, small select teams of great people. If I answer it philosophically through Margaret Mead, nothing, you know, more powerful than a group of committed individuals who want to change the world, you know, kind of thing and all of that. But to me, fundamentally, I think leadership is every individual is a leader. We all are, whether we accept it or not, is, is our choice. And it's not just about leading as in leading others but it's also leading yourself to be the best person you can be and all the challenges that that brings with it, you know, mm-hmm. outside, of course, your responsibilities and, and your, and, and your role and your influence you have with your immediate family, your partner, your family, your children, your next door neighbor, your local community and so on and so forth. If you take that ripple out from there, we, we, we all are, are real leaders. And, and I think, it's when we when we realize that that we've got that ability in ourselves to make our, our own lives better and the lives of everyone else we touch better. And that could just be through smiling, a simple act of smiling regularly to, to people, you know, or just positivity. And we see that a lot right now in the COVID scenario. You know, people suffering Groundhog Day, they're struggling genuinely. And the ones who just come a bit chirpier and try and pick everyone else up, you know, they also pick themselves up as well in that process, you know. So to me, that's that's my view uh, on it. That's that's a real leader, someone who can, you know, learn to improve themselves first and foremostly, and and through that journey, realize that they can also support anyone around them, you know. And that 
Omar, beautifully put. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for everyone who hung on uh, to this conversation of business philosophy. Man, we touched everything today in this conversation. And folks, for listening to this, it's about, what is it, 1 a.m. your time right now? Yeah, no, coming up to midnight in, in Scotland, yep. Kind of no, we've got nowhere to go. We're in lockdown. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I just want to appreciate your time coming on the Reelers podcast. I knew this was going to be a fun conversation today. I can't wait to get to the editing aspect of this. Uh, for Omar Sheikh, I'm Kevin Edwards asking to go out there, find your inner leader, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Omar. Thanks, Kevin. All keeping on, good people, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And if you haven't yet subscribed or left a review, yes, I'm talking to you, make sure to do so. Go on to your Apple Podcast or any listening platform, scroll down to the bottom, hit a five-star rating and let us know what you think and how we can improve this podcast for all the lucky listeners today you my friend are going to walk away with a free magazine all you got to do is go online to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and enter in coupon code podcast 25 at checkout to receive your first magazine for free with a one-year subscription Folks, that's four magazines for the price of three. Again, coupon code PODCAST25. That's all lowercase. For all the visual learners out there, if you want to watch this interview on your computer or TV with friends and family, make sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel at Reelers Magazine to see all of our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. That's it for me. Thanks for being a Real Leader and stay tuned for the next episode.